you cannot work with an animal that is that phenomenal, that strong, that able to survive and not be impacted and not feel just firstly blessed to have access to them and then just inspired to want to just tell everyone about them and take action and protect their home and do everything you can. And, and so they're your, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> turtles are cool. Welcome to the Possibless. Possibless is now a partnership between Pelicanus and Reverse the Red. In this series, we will highlight the scientists, organizations, institutions, and communities focused on reversing the trend of biodiversity loss and recovering species on the IUCN Red List. We're so excited for this partnership and to get these amazing success stories out to the world, spreading optimism for the conservation of biodiversity. For this episode, as part of the Reverse the Red's Year of Action, the theme for June is aquatic and marine species. We talk with Talitha Noble of the Two Oceans Aquarium Foundation to learn everything there is to know about the amazing work they do to recover sea turtle populations in South Africa. Enjoy our conversation with Tally. Talitha, thank you so much for joining us. Please introduce yourself and tell us uh, who you are, what you do. Amazing. Thanks for having me, Austin and Taylor. Um, My name's Salitha, and I'm based in Cape Town, right at the southern tip of Africa. Um, And I'm the conservation manager here at the Two Oceans Aquarium Foundation. Um, The Two Oceans Aquarium Foundation is the not-for-profit of the Two Oceans Aquarium, which is an incredible aquarium that um, literally sits at the meeting point of two very different ocean currents and exists to show the diversity and beauty of those life that exists because of the difference. Um, But we have, as part of one of our conservation projects here, a turtle conservation center, which is not something you would necessarily expect at the southern tip of Africa, Um, but a very active, thriving, um, yeah, set up and need for a sea turtle conservation center. Um, And therefore, yeah, I have the great privilege of managing and running that. One, I love the name, the, the Two Oceans Aquarium. It's a perfect name. I love it. But mm. can you explain the basically the programs that you guys run uh, through the Turtle Conservation Center? Yeah. So the context is that in South Africa, so globally, there are seven species of sea turtle. Uh, all of them are endangered. Quite a few species are critically endangered. Um, and this is because of lots of historical pressure, um, from all different sort of points of view, they really are um, quite as sort of vulnerable to, to climate change, to um, human impact, fishing, all sorts of things. Um, but in South Africa, we see five of those seven species in our water, um, which is a lot because our, a lot of our coastline is actually very Southern Ocean-like, <laughs> influenced heavily by the currents coming up from, from Antarctica. Um, but in South Africa, we also have two nesting species of sea turtle. And that's really quite close up the east coast of South Africa, close to Mozambique. Um, and what happens every year is you have these uh, loggerhead and leatherbacks, which are the nesting turtles, that come ashore to lay their eggs. Um, and the stretch of beach they, they nest in is in South Africa being protected for over 60 years. It's an incredible... Um, 
incredibly well-protected and well-documented um, nesting beach. And these little babies are, are laid in their eggs. And then after six to eight weeks of incubation, they hatch. These little babies go to sea. And when they go to sea off the east coast of South Africa, they hit the warm, mighty Agullis current, which is coming down from the equator. It's fast. It's, uh, it can get up to one and a half meters per second. And you can imagine these little baby hatchlings, they fit into the palm of your hand. They're 15, 20 grams. They, they're just going with the flow. <laughs> they're um, really in survival mode. And they're also being attacked by everything. So you've got the seabirds, you've got the crabs, you've got the fish, you've got everything that's trying to have a go at them. Um, and now they're drifting in this fast current. But the current's also warm, which is suitable and really good for them. Um, and that current is coming down the entire coastline of South Africa. But as it reaches the south coast, it naturally sort of slows down and actually bends backward. It retroflects back up the coast. Um, and when it does that, these little baby turtles are spat out of the warm water. Um, and instead, they find themselves in the coastal water, which is much colder because of the influence of upwelling, which is cold, lower water, sort of deeper water coming up to the surface, as well as the influence of the colder Antarctic water. Antarctica water. And so these turtles go into thermal shock. Um, we call it cold shock. They go from a toasty 25 degrees Celsius to uh, 11, 12 degrees Celsius water. Um, and that in combination with the fact that they've often got lots of injuries from all of these animals that have tried to eat them. Um, and also the fact that they've been floating in the current and eating opportunistically anything that's been floating. Um, including a huge amount of microplastic, leads them to strand on our beaches. Um, and we have here in the Western Cape, so really in the southern part of South Africa, we have a stranding season that runs from about March to about July, August every year, where we see these little baby turtles stranding on our beaches. It's heavily influenced by the temperature of the water, which is always changing. It's heavily influenced by wind and winter storms that we experience. It's also heavily influenced by the number of people that are in these different areas to, to find these turtles. Um, and what we've developed over the last sort of six years, which has just been the most phenomenal thing to see and be a part of, is a, a, a provincial rescue network um, that is made up of, we literally have a volunteer who's gone with a very <laughs> close map um, and looks at every little stretch of coastline, looked at how accessible it is, who lives there, what conservation organizations are involved in that area, what local communities, what sort of sea rescue organizations, what sports um, teams and kayaking groups and swimming clubs there are. And we've literally gone like kilometer by kilometer along the whole coastline and um, activated it. We've gone and done training, we've done education and awareness, we've created many turtle hospital stations, um, and really focused on raising awareness of what to do when you find a sea turtle on the beach. Um, the bigger picture of where they've come from, where they need to go, what the like, what our goals are with them uh, once they are in our facility. And then partnering with all these little families, communities, organizations to um, create a transport network to get the turtles to us um, in Cape Town. And that's now got over 600 people in it. Um, and we are every year rescuing more and more sea turtles in more and more places. And I do think it's because we've got more and more people looking for them and knowing what to do. 
the natural instinct with any sea creature that is stranded is that you want to put it back in the water. Um, and the nature of a sea turtle that's stranded in the Western Cape is that because they don't nest here, they should never be on shore. And so if they've stranded on the beach, they're going to die if not rescued. And so it's a, a huge opportunity to, to do education and awareness, lots of school um, school activations. We start in February the stranding season with a road trip where we go to a lot of these places and we get everyone excited about turtles. And then we just see that live itself out in the rescue season. Um, and every year, I mean, we can have a turtle stranding now at this time of the day and within the next couple of hours you'll have between 10 and 15 people involved in the transportation. You'll literally have little different drop-off points and Ubers going from one thing one place to the next, um, getting the little turtle to our facility in Cape Town. So that's been a huge, cool part of what we do because without rescue, we obviously can't do any rehabilitation, which is the kind of focus. So, and by doing rescue, you also really, I mean, in terms of creating conservationists and um, ambassadors for the species, all you need to do is find a vulnerable baby sea turtle on the beach that's on the brink of death um, and help be part of the process that enables it to survive and you are hooked. <laughs> you are willing to do anything for that little guy um, and you really see the impact that we have and their vulnerability and you also recognize um, that there's a lot of space for us to, as individuals make big changes. Um, and so that's really exciting. So when you get these stranded sea turtles, what do you do next? But then when the little turtles arrive at our facility, we, we basically here focusing on building a world-class sea turtle hospital. Um, and the, the really the fundamentals of a sea turtle hospital include medical care, obviously, very, very specialized medical care, um, includes nutrition, um, water, because that's the environment they live in, and so really excellent water quality. And then also enrichment, which is um, something that is actually really essential to um, having a good, strong rehabilitation journey. Um, and so when the turtles arrive here, we have a veterinary team of specialized sea turtle vets that have been doing a lot of work with our sea turtles in the last years. Um, and we admit them, we stabilize them because all of our sea turtles come in and they're cold chopped. Our priority is always first to slowly warm them up again before we do any kind of medical things. So um, they always slowly get warmed up over about 24 hours. We'll rehydrate them with fresh water. And then once they're stable and feeling a little bit better, um, we'll, we'll, I guess, admit them into a hospital and we use everything on them as clues. So often the little hitchhikers that are growing on them are really good kind of indicators as to how they've been floating, how long they've been floating for, where they've been hanging out. And so we'll often collect information about that. We'll look at their little bodies. We'll feel their little muscles and their little bones just to see how they're going. Um, they've often got sort of from being bashed and bunged around, they'll have um, inflammation or injuries. Um, we'll do x-rays. We'll often give them a little... All of them get a little vitamin boost when they arrive, um, but many of them need to also start on antibiotics and even pain therapy. Um, and we spend a lot of time observing them, observing how they float, whether they're symmetrical, whether they're a little bit asymmetrical. Um, we look out for poop. In rehab, poop is always a good thing. Um, and so when they start pooping, it's a sign of a good gut. 
um, we look out for that. We start slowly getting them into food. And generally you find that after the first few days, you start to see this little shell literally of a, of a creature come back to life. Um, and as they come back to life, they shall start to show you who they are, their little personalities, um, their little weird quirks. You start to see their favorite types of food. You start to see their sort of um, willingness and keenness to dive and explore. Um, and that's just always so exciting. And from that point, we spend about six to nine months then focusing on helping them healthily grow. Um, because for a sea turtle out in the ocean, the biggest advantage is size. Size and a hard shell. As a species, they experience really high mortality when they're babies. So naturally, only one or two in every thousand would actually reach maturity, um, which is a pretty phenomenal <laughs> um, thing for these little guys. But as they grow, the number of predators they have obviously decreases dramatically, the number of animals that can literally fit them into their mouth. And then that, along with their hard shell, they can really use well for defense. Um, and that sort of gives them a really good chance. And we kind of here in Cape Town are quite limited as to when we can release turtles because of our cold water that we have on the coast. In summertime, the warm current comes closer to shore and we're able to access it by boat. And so we need to wait until um, Christmas time usually before we can release them. So we've often got these little sea turtles for between six to nine months. Um, giving us lots of opportunity to get them nice and healthy and big and strong, um, at which point we then take them out by boat and put them back into the warm water. And literally, that is the natural point of the journey that they should have been on. Like, So we kind of put them back at that point in their journey. And at that point, then they enter into the decade called the last years, which is literally unknown, <laughs> um, where we don't know where they go. We know that they are pelagic. They hang out in deep waters. Um, and they're probably hanging in surface currents, floating around, eating um, in sargasm islands. But um, we then allow them to, to carry on on that journey. Um, and that's kind of a cycle that we experience every year with these little baby hatchlings. So what, um, what, is, what does enrichment look like for a sea turtle? Mm. Enrichment is cool. It's something... Um, that we've really focused on in the last sort of two years. Um, and the idea of enrichment is creating an environment and creating stimulus for, for the animal. So what we'll often do is think about, okay, what is this turtle at this age and with the species doing in the wild? Um, those activities change dramatically depending on the age. And so we'll, we'll look at the species, we'll, we'll I'll try and figure and understand what they'd be doing at that point, and then we'll try continuously through their rehab to incorporate as much of that wild um, environment as possible to enable them to exhibit these wild behaviors. And for a turtle in rehabilitation that um, is just going through a standard rehabilitation, that just enables them to exhibit their wild behaviors and feel most natural and at home. But for some of our turtles, the enrichment is actually a real sort of um, part of their medical procedure. So it's actually something that we're using to help them get stronger and heal, and specifically for, for turtles that have neurological issues. Um, we find that quite a few turtles might have um, vision impairments or they might have damage to some part of their brain that makes it harder for them to do activities, makes their movement and response time slower. And in those, at those points, we'll incorporate 
cognitive enrichment, we'll incorporate nutritional enrichment, um, all sorts of enrichments, tactile, to actually make their brain work. Um, it's most easily compared to occupational therapy. So basically a set of obstacles and challenges and games that are incorporated into their routine to keep things changing and different, um, to keep their brain active and having to constantly problem solve. And then what we do, which is a, an essential component to this, is we, before we start that kind of an enrichment program, we'll observe them for between two to four weeks to um, kind of establish what their baseline behaviors and, and patterns are. Um, and then we'll start incorporating a bespoke enrichment plan to address some kind of problematic or stereotypical behaviors that we're seeing. Um, and then we'll observe and monitor their behavior right after the enrichment activities. And we have seen incredible responses um, that turtles are much more curious. They have much more um, exploratory behaviors, which is what we love to see, way fewer pattern behaviors, which is something that unfortunately in a rehab space is inevitable because it's, it's a limited environment. Um, and so the enrichment can often be between one to three times a day, five to six days a week. And our, our real, the real motivation for us to start doing this intense enrichment was we had a sea turtle who'd been with us for six to eight years. He, um, or six years at the time, he had brain damage, he had midbrain damage. So he really struggled to interpret what he saw. His behaviors were really not very wild-like. He showed no aggression. <laughs> um, and he was very, very relaxed, too relaxed. Um, and by incorporating, I mean, many um, other rehabilitation places or, or, or vets said that it was highly unlikely that he would be able to be released. And we were like, no, all of our turtles are going to be released. <laughs> um, and so we started this enrichment plan and we had someone who worked with, with Bob specifically um, for a year and a half. And over that time, his behaviors just absolutely changed, chalk to cheese. Um, his, his swimming speed, he used to take about a minute to swim a lap in our pool and now, and then by the end of it, he would do it in 10 seconds. He would start actually becoming a problem, like biting things and people. I mean, he would have regular neurological tests and those improved over time. And the only thing that changed, I mean, he didn't have any different medicine. He didn't have any different real, I mean, he had more wild food, but his diet didn't change too much. It really was the incorporation of the enrichment. Um, and his own ability to, to heal and get to the point where, I mean, his brain damage didn't change, but his behavior changed and he was much more equipped to survive in the wild. And he was therefore released at the beginning of this year in January. Um, and we're busy tracking him. Bob. In talking about enrichment, you, um, you mentioned a couple of the different species and, and you know, the, the different uh, attributes of these species. So you mentioned that there are seven different species of sea turtles in the world and two of them nest in South Africa. And you can kind of find uh, washed up sea turtles for many different species, but can you kind of talk a little bit about the, the difference in species and kind of uh, how you interact with um, uh, different species? I don't know, do you get all seven or how many do you get? We get five of the seven. The two species that we don't get are um, the flatback, which you find really only on the west coast of Australia. Um, and the Kemp Ridley, which is very sort of Central American. Um, and so it's interesting to see how across different species and then obviously on, a, on an added layer individually, um, how the different individuals play around and interact with things. And so um, 
it's often a case of discovering what that is. We've, I mean, one of our turtles currently, when she came in, enjoyed a range of different foods. And then she became like only focused on squid. She would eat nothing else except squid. Um, and then she, for a period of time, allowed us to feed her some pulchard and then like back to only squid. And so they go through their own weird phases and fluxes of things. Um, we have a very, very fussy hawks bull at the moment who made us literally drive to one harbor in Cape Town to find a specific type of jellyfish because she would eat nothing else. And she was emaciated and skinny. We needed to get her weight up. And, and we were just like trying to try all sorts of different things, hiding food in jellyfish, trying to get it to eat. And eventually we've, we've got her now on mullet. But the mullet have to be fresh. She won't eat mullet if it's been frozen. So... We say, we say rehabilitation facility, but the truth of the matter is that very often it's a hotel. <laughs> are you guys hiring? I can move to South Africa. I could get into hey, that we rugby. Are. <laughs> <laughs> Cape That's Town, awesome. I, can, I can highly recommend. I'll take you guys on. You can come and get stuck in. <laughs> As part of the Reverse the Red uh, partnership we have, we have this year of action where we're highlighting the positive stories and obviously you guys for everything you're doing is a positive story, but can you talk a little bit about uh, being a part of this larger network to reverse the red of the species and specifically turtles? Cause you, as you've said, you've been there since the beginning. So what does that feel like to be a part of this large network? It's a huge privilege. Um, I think in any space where you feel like you're part of a community of like-minded people, it's a privilege and it's something that keeps you in check. It keeps you inspired. Um, it's a resource. And I certainly have found that the turtle community and the community in, in the conservation space that I've engaged with has been such a source of, of all of those things, of... Um, of information, of sharing, of, um, of resource. I think when it comes to reverse the red and it comes to sea turtles, one of the things that I've really been struck by with these little sea turtles and the bigger sea turtles is that one of the, I mean, one has to talk about some of the really negative impacts and definitely some of the, the harsh impacts that they are facing are plastic pollution, um, I mean, microplastic and larger plastic, we've had turtles come in that have, have swallowed plastic bags, that have a gut that's been compacted, full of plastic, that um, have in their tiny, a tiny little turtle, one we described, that fits in the palm of your hand with 121 pieces of microplastic. Um, and when you look at all the threats, it's very easy to, to say like, yes, these turtles experience high mortality when they're young because of the um, the predation by all the animals, their soft shell, because the currents are wild. And those are natural threats and pressures they face, and, and that's okay. But the fact that they're stranding with tummies full of plastic, the fact that our, we've got adults stranding in ghost fishing nets and, and not able to breathe because they have swallowed a plastic bag, and not able to pass feces because they're stuffed with, with, with bits of plastic, is um, a real it's a real problem um, and it's something that we have real ability to do something about. And so for me, I feel very strongly that when we have these turtles here, that we should not shy away from sharing the very real horrific stories of what they've experienced in the ocean, because it's a real indication as to what the ocean is like for them. Um, and we have the ability to change. 
one of the things as part of this, as like we call it the uh, the year of action, is we want to kind of share how people can get involved. Obviously, mm-hmm. if they're in uh, Cape Town, they can they can help you guys. But if say if they're not in Cape Town or they're not anywhere near the coast, how mm-hmm. can they help the conservation of sea turtles? Mm. That's an exciting, cool question because. I mean, one of the things that's that's very true for humankind is that we're all connected by the ocean. Physically, the ocean is is all around us and connects our spaces, but it's also life-giving for all of us. Um, And if you live in the absolute middle of the USA or the middle of South Africa, furthest distance from the ocean, your actions still lead to um, have an impact on the ocean, which is both wonderful and terrifying because... um, most of our rubbish and waste somehow manages to end up there. And, and so it doesn't matter where you are, you can be protecting the home of sea turtles if you live in the desert <laughs> um, by taking action, by like cleaning up your environment, by making conscious choices, by doing all the things we've described. Um, and I think the biggest thing is that in each time you do that action, you're reinforcing the concept, the lifestyle, the motivation behind it. Um, and very often people look and question that and it gives you an opportunity then um, in the middle of the desert or in the like inland somewhere where you're where you're doing that action to tell someone about how this can impact a sea turtle and someone else is inspired to do the same and again that leads to the flipper effect to create big change and you know if it's you have all these little I imagine these little like dispersions of of positive sort of turtle rescuers, not just by rescuing turtles, but by their lifestyle every day. Um, And these little sort of explosions of positive action taking place all around on the coast, inland, everywhere, that eventually we reach each other, a network of of exciting, conscious um, behavior that feels equipped and enabled and aware that our action has has a consequence that we're seeing. I mean, on a biological level, um, in terms of terms, we, you know, we talk of turtles as, as indicator species, um, as really giving us an idea of what's happening out at sea, a place in an area that is often kilometers offshore, very far removed from our ability of what we can process and recognize. And so um, when they come in full of plastic, it's an indication of what's out there in the ocean. And so um, as we see an increase in plastic and sea turtles, it's even more of a motivation to take bigger action, stronger action. But again, also all from the point of, of wanting to protect, of wanting to care, of, of feeling inspired and hopeful that we can. Um, and that for me is also a motivation that is sustainable. Yeah, one thing you said that I loved was the, you know, it's, it's conscious effort. And that's a that's an idea that we like to keep keep asking about is because you know you know you don't just fall into this and accidentally create this program. This was a a conscious effort that you and many other people put together. Um, but with that, you know, essentially the same same idea is you know with the conscious effort is like how did you get into this? Because again, you don't fall into running and creating a sea turtle conservation program. <laughs> No. <laughs> um, and I think if I think back now, little, little young Tally would have been, <laughs> I think, quite blown away by where she's gotten to already. I mean, I've been very, um, I'm very grateful. I've, I've been, I've been given opportunities and I've been um, in spaces where 
I've been inspired. But I think for me, the biggest influence has been living in Cape Town. We have natural beauty all around us. Um, we have mountains, we have oceans, we have rock pools, we have um, beautiful spaces to swim. Um, and I, yeah, my family was always very um, engaged in that. We spent a lot of time in the mountain and the ocean. Um, and so my love was deep. I had a connection um, with those spaces. And that kind of really would just override my imagination all the time. I would dream of the ocean, of wanting to be a mermaid, of wanting to be in, in spaces that were natural and beautiful. And then as you grow up and as you're in school and as you're studying and you're thinking about what you want to do, um, really the realization that, well, if this is such a love of mine, if I enjoy spending all my time in these spaces, then I, you know, and I see the threats and the struggles um, and the problems that they're experiencing, then I want to be involved in something that um, is going to make a difference. So for me, I wanted to study marine biology, but I wanted conservation and education to be two core components of what I did. So I didn't know what that was going to look like. I didn't know what I was going to actually do. There's a, you know, who knows what a marine biologist does. Um, my reference really was like flipper. <laughs> Um, I'd spent a lot of time as I was in school um, volunteering and being involved with the Two Oceans Aquarium. They have an incredible education program, and that certainly gave me an avenue to be exposed to a multitude of marine jobs, everything from you know being a professional diver to um, looking after and caring for animals. Um, and I, how I ended up in sea turtles is actually that after I studied, I couldn't find work. And so I approached the, um, the, sea, or the curator of the aquarium at the time, who um, I'd known and, and met through all of the volunteering work I'd done. And I was like, please, please give me a job. Um, I don't pay me. It'll be volunteer-based. But I, I see an opportunity here. I think you could do with someone full-time for sea turtles. And at the end of it, please just write me a really good reference so that I can actually get some employment. So it's been an incredible journey of... of of looking for opportunities, of grabbing what's been um, around, of also having just this huge privilege of being able to pursue what I'm passionate about and having the support to do that. I am very aware that that's not a privilege that many people have. Um, and so I feel yeah, very lucky and blessed that I've ended up in a space where I get to incorporate the direct conservation, education, and marine, the three passions and sort of cause of what I love and that it's able to be represented um, by the sea turtle, which is just the most incredibly wonderful animal that inspires me every day. Yeah, and you, you don't have that journey that you just told us about, and especially working with a species that is struggling so much, like, the, like all the different species of sea turtles, without some sort of hope or optimism. Mm. This series is called The Possibilist. We call it Possibilism. Uh, going back to the conscious effort idea that we were talking about earlier. So you, you kind of mentioned a couple of things already, but what is it that gives you the hope to kind of keep going from day to day? Without a shadow of a doubt, it's each little baby sea turtle, big sea turtle that you that you are inspired by. I mean, there was your, the number of sea turtles, and, and one always obviously projects one's own sort of stories and one anthropomorphizes the sea turtles, obviously. But... Um, there's a connection when you see a turtle coming in that's had a boat strike wound where you can see the lungs exposed where this turtle is barely able to breathe and yet it does breathe. 
where it's like every day when you do the wound treatment, the most painful experience, and yet it pulls through. It's that like resilience and that's like, you know, they poop plastic, but then they'll keep eating and then they'll poop another plastic and then <laughs> they'll just keep eating like the good food that we give them. Eventually the plastic's gone. Um, I think just the basic pure um, just sort of strength that we get from the sea turtles personally. I mean, I see, you see it in their eyes, you see it in their behavior, you see it in the labored breath often, um, just the strength, the resilience um, that they have. It's, it like, it really hits you hard. And you think like, if this turtle can be breathing, its back is cut open, its lungs are exposed, it's in the most intense level of pain. Like, how can I not pull through with my little personal issue that I've got or I'm struggling with? And so, like, continuously through my life over the last six years, I've drawn inspiration and strength from, from the sea turtles that have taught and inspired me um, and have motivated me to be curious, have motivated me to be strong, have motivated me to find alternative solutions and keep pushing and keep going. And, just, and often it's like long periods of time. Um, if, like it's for a year or two years to like, just keep going that turtle and me, we're just still keeping going on the same thing. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's daily, it's daily inspiring and daily hopeful. Um, because they, it's a new day to, will today be the day you eat? Will today be the day where we make progress? Um, and sometimes it is, and then there's this huge sense of accomplishment and celebration, um, for that animal. And that you then feel as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the turtles. And I see this when I interact with other people that work with, with sea turtles as well. You cannot work with an animal that is that phenomenal, that strong, that um, able to survive and not be impacted and not feel just firstly blessed to have access to them um, and then just inspired to want to just tell everyone about them and take action and protect their home and do everything you can. And, and so they're your, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> turtles are cool. Just thank you so much for your infectious optimism and, and just enthusiasm for all this. It's so, it's so incredible. It, yeah. I love it. Thank you guys for sharing incredible stories. Thank you for giving yeah, me the opportunity to, to, to chat to you. Um, I hope to see you both in our space in Cape Town with your work boots on at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Taylor's an academic it. now. He doesn't do any hard work. <laughs> <laughs> we That's... have research that happens here. <laughs> Tally, thank you so much. You're amazing. Thank you so much for giving us your time and all the work you do for sea turtles. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again to Tally for talking with us and sharing her amazing stories of saving sea turtles in South Africa. Please check out the Two Oceans Aquarium Foundation site to learn more and see how you can help. But also don't forget to look into how you can help with sea turtle conservation in your area. Hosts and producers for this episode are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producers are Megan Joyce and Dr. Judy Mann. Music was provided by A Picture Book Studios. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.